Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do Death. Hello, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm all right. I'm fine. It's been a while since we've uh, we've done this. Yeah, it feels like it wasn't that long ago, but you just remind me it was two weeks ago. It's so been two weeks. I've lost yes, two weeks so of my life. <laughs> apologies to our more regular listeners if you've missed us. Yeah, we uh, we had a big birthday and we've both been away and things, haven't we? So, um, yeah, just haven't been able to find the opportunity to get together. But we're here now. No, we're here now and uh, should be smooth sailing until Christmas, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, yes. <laughs> the, we're here now. We are. There's been a bit of true crime news, but to be honest, I've, I'm struggling to keep on top of it at the moment because work is just so busy. But um, one thing that did catch my attention yesterday is that they have set a trial date for the Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell case. Oh, okay. January 2023. <laughs> what? So we've got another year to wait until um, until they go to trial. So there must be a lot of evidence for them to kind of sift through and and pull together for it to be that far into the future but i thought i would update you that we've got a year to wait (laughs) i thought it was imminent that it was gonna start i thought it was imminent i think i must have just misunderstood what was going on okay maybe it was like um, pre-hearings or something that it could have i mean they're in hearings all the time there was another hearing this week for something else they had to they moved where it was taking place because they said they weren't going to get a fair trial where it was so they moved it like 20 miles down the road i don't think that's going to make much difference because everyone knows about the story so but yeah 20, january 2023 that's when that's wow. when it's all gonna kick off but also oh, okay. i think maybe some of that but that behind is that it gives laurie Vallow a year to recover so she should be <laughs> yeah, okay. fit enough to stand trial by then right i think that's some of the um logic behind it but we'll wait and see Okay. And the only other news that I've really picked up on, and I don't really know much about the story, and it's pretty distressing, but uh, it looks like Emma Tustin and Thomas Hughes will be in prison for a very long time. Particularly that woman. She uh, There's a mugshot of her here, and she just looks evil. Yeah, she doesn't look... Um... She doesn't look friendly, does she? No, for killing her six-year-old stepson, basically. Mm, Yeah. Why his father allowed it to happen, I don't know. But uh, she's got 29 years, he's got 21. Awful. Well, I hope they get everything that they deserve. I'm sure they will in prison. Evil, evil, evil. Yeah, absolutely. Anything on the Brian Laundrie case? And it's a little bit late, but as soon as we haven't recorded for two weeks, this news came out since our last podcast, um, that they have revealed that Brian Laundrie died of a self-inflicted gun wound to the head. Um, so that looks like suicide. So, I mean, take from that what you will. be really interesting to see if anything else ever comes out about this case or if it's just job done now. Um, yeah. But he was, he committed suicide. Sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. You're not trying to... Um... I think quite how they know it was self-inflicted. All they've got is a bunch must... of bones with a hole yeah. in the skull. It must be something to do with like the angle and the trajectory the of where it was. But I wonder if they mm. ever found a gun okay. because they, you know, they managed to find him and his bag and stuff. Why haven't they found a gun? That's my other question. But hey, 
there's all sorts of conspiracy theories going on around what's going on there. <laughs> That's the sort of story that could just breed conspiracy stories. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so many of them. Just one other bit of exciting news. Um, this Sunday, Phoebe, you and I, we're going to the Postmortem Live, the UK's first immersive live postmortem experience. I'm excited. <laughs> so it's four, four and a half hours, so yeah. it should be quite in-depth. It's a semi-synthetic body, so I don't know what the semi bit is if there's like bits What's of real body in it <laughs> yeah <laughs> if bits of it are synthetic does that mean that bits of it are real i don't know interesting yeah I'm looking forward uh, to it um, yeah okay well we can report a little bit on that on our next we podcast can. we can and so, yeah. we might be might be able to be hired out for post-mortems from next week <laughs> no, let's not get ahead of ourselves <laughs> no it's, it's going to be fascinating and i'm really looking forward to it so uh, thank you. you for that gift it's, um... Happy birthday! Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Nothing says happy birthday like <laughs> taking your dad to an immersive <laughs> postmortem experience. <laughs> so tonight, I'm I'm breaking one of our rules, um, and what? I'm sorry. I did check this question. You said it was okay, um, and I am actually covering a an American case tonight, purely because as Christmas songs have started playing, and I've been listening to Christmas songs I like. I was very quickly reminded of the Phil Spector Christmas album, which is probably Ah. one of my favourite Christmas albums. And then I was thinking, that's a great story. It's sort of Christmassy in that he had a Christmas album. It's a nice transition into Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also, it's kind of one of the first cases that I ever really vividly remember being interested in. When we did that road trip from Wisconsin over to... New York, New York, and his trial was happening on the telly at the same time in 2007. And watching that trial live was fascinating. I think it was the first experience I'd ever had, definitely, of seeing what a trial looked like. And I thought, let's 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 look at this. This could be an interesting story to look at. A really interesting man and an interesting murder. So I thought, let's. step into Christmas and look at Phil Spector. Sounds like a great idea. And also I feel like it's not a case that gets covered a huge amount. Like I have never come across it on another podcast, just like popping up sort of thing. So I thought, you know what, let's do this. Okay. So Harvey Philip Spector was born on December the 26th, again, Christmassy, 1939, to Benjamin and Bertha Spector. And they were a first generation immigrant Jewish family um, in the Bronx in New York City. In April 1949, Spectre's father committed suicide, um, and on his gravestone were inscribed the words, Ben Spectre, father, husband, to know him was to love him. In 1953, Spectre's mother moved the family over to Los Angeles, where she found work as a seamstress, and Spectre attended John Burroughs Junior High School and the Fairfax High School. And at Fairfax, he joined a group of aspiring musicians, including Lou Adler, Bruce Johnson, Steve Douglas and Sandy Nelson. Um, And it was there that with Sandy Nelson and two other friends, Marshall Lieb and Annette Kleinbard, that they formed a group called the Teddy Bears. In December 1958, they released a single, To Know Him Is To Love Him, inspired by his dad's epitaph. (laughs) And that reached number one on the Billboard Hot 
100 singles chart on December the 1st, 1958, selling over a million copies, which was a lot of copies at that time. It was the seventh yeah. number one ever on the Billboard hit charts because of when kind of the Billboard charts were started. So okay. it was right at the beginning of the Billboard charts. And they had some success. Um, that was by far their kind of most successful song. But he was absolutely crippled by stage fright. Um, he hated performing. He was not a, a performer. And after kind of things broke down with the teddy bears, he decided to focus more on being behind the scenes and went to focus on writing and producing. Now, by the time that he was 21, he'd earned his first million dollars. Um, wow. So he was a millionaire by the time that he was 21, which must kind of set you aside a little bit. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't suppose there were many 21-year-olds who were millionaires in the late Not 1950s. In, I was going to say, in the 50s? Wow. No. <laughs> so I think he was already kind of on the back foot. He'd always been seen as a little odd, a little quirky, didn't really kind of gel with people, didn't really have any friends a bit weird um and then obviously you know the fact that he was so different to everybody else by having all this money made things more difficult for him so but okay. in, in in 1959 he started working in studios as an apprentice producer and also a session musician and he started writing some songs as well in 1961 he formed um, a record company called Phillies Records and he started working with the crystals at, at that point he continued to work both for his kind of record company and also freelance with other artists with people like Connie Francis Jean Deshawn really big names he was kind of really building up his repertoire yeah and at this sort of, yeah and at this point mm. he really kind of trademarked his really signature sound which was his wall of sound wall which of was sound, a, yeah. a production technique which meant he was using like dense layered effects that reproduced really well on the radio and jukeboxes so that kind of poor quality transmission yeah what he had meant that it could be it could still sound great even though yep. it was kind of being transmitted on these kind of poor quality speakers so to do this yep. he gathered together big groups of musicians playing instruments not usually used for ensemble playing so things like guitars um bits of orchestrated parts doubling and tripling many parts in unison for like a much fuller sound and he called it a what wagnerian approach to rock and roll <laughs> little symphonies for the kids i mean it's true they were kind of and, and i think you can really tell so and there was a lot of things that i didn't realize that he'd written but when you think about it and you kind of think about what they sound or he worked on. When you think about this kind of sound of them, you think actually, yeah, they do kind of sound really similar. <laughs> so the first time that he kind of really put a lot of effort into building his own kind of LP and not just working with other artists was when he used essentially all the contacts that he had and the people that he was using for his record label to make the 1963 Christmas album, A Christmas Gift for You. Okay. He was hoping that it was going to become a massive hit for the Christmas season. And obviously he'd put a lot of time and money and investment into creating this album, which, I mean, say what you want about Phil Spector, it's a great Christmas album. <laughs> and most of the songs are kind of standard songs that get played every single it's year. It's enduring, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, really good Christmas songs. And apart from, I always remember that kind of creepy message at the end of him saying like, Merry Christmas. 
like he's like there's like a them singing like it's like a choir and he's sing he's like talking over it isn't he it's like the last track and he's like saying merry christmas i remember that being a bit creepy um <laughs> so he'd he'd created this surefire hit however <laughs> it was yeah. released a couple of days after president kennedy was assassinated in november 1963 so it was somewhat overshadowed by those events and it was a commercial flop it didn't really oh. do anything at all in 1965, he signed the Righteous Brothers to Phillies, um, releasing their massive hits, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, Just Once In My Life, and Unchained Melody. But he got bored of producing them, and he sold them on in 1966. His first marriage was in 1963 to a lady called Annette Myra, who was the lead vocalist of Spectres 3, which was a 1960s pop trio that he'd formed and was producing him. He also named a kind of secondary record company after her. However, whilst he was still married to her, he began having an affair with Veronica Bennett, who was later known as Ronnie Spector, Ronnie Bennett, who was the lead singer of the girl group, the Renettes, who were oh, okay. another group that he managed and produced. And yep. there's quite a few of their songs on the Christmas album. They married in 1968 and they adopted a son called... Dante Philip Spectre. As a Christmas present that year, Spectre surprised Ronnie by adopting her twins, Louis and Gary. <laughs> Merry Christmas, it's some children. <laughs> That's uh, can you imagine? <laughs> so they were in there, Dante. Yeah, and then he adopted then... her twins for Christmas. Louis and Gary. Yeah. It wasn't a happy marriage. In her oh. 1990 memoir, Be My Baby, How I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts and Madness, mm -hmm. uh, Ronnie Bennett alleged that Spectre had essentially imprisoned her in his California home um, and subjected her to years of psychological torment. According by to her... By bringing home children. By bringing home <laughs> twins. Oh, my God, that would be enough psychological torment, wouldn't it? Oh, my God. There's someone rocking up one day with some twins. According to her, he sabotaged her career by forbidding her to perform and she escaped from the mansion barefoot with the help of her own mother in 1972. Oh, um, wow. and that's the only way that she could kind of get away from him. In their 1974 divorce settlement, she forfeited all future record earnings from the Renettes that he'd kind of worked on and surrendered custody of their children. And she said that this was because that he'd threatened to hire a hitman to kill her if he didn't, if she didn't agree mm. to these um, requests. Okay. So I think there's already some, some red flags there around maybe what oh, yeah. sort of man uh, Phil Spector was. So his final, we're going to kind of go jumping back a little bit here, but his final signing to Phillies was um, Ike and Tina Turner in April 1966. And he considered the single River Deep Mountain High, which he yeah. worked on to be his best work. Um, okay. And I mean, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with him. It's a great song. <laughs> but Yes, it's got um, that wall of sound feel about yeah. it, doesn't it, when you think about mm. it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't realise that that was one that he'd done. I was like, oh, actually, yeah, maybe... Yeah, it does sound like him. But it only actually reached number 88 in the charts in the United States, no which way. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Like, I just thought it was a massive song and everyone loved yeah. it and knew it. Um, but no, only only number 88. But it was very successful in Britain, reaching number three in the charts in Britain. But he was kind of furious about this and basically thought, well, 
if people can't see my genius then they don't deserve to have it so it was around this sort of time that he started to kind of withdraw a bit and he became he was already kind of reclusive he didn't really have any friends he only had associates but he just kind of withdrew himself completely from the public eye I mean he was already a gazillionaire so he didn't really need the money but he was kind of very offended that people didn't see that it was the genius that it was that that (laughs) he he needed the respect in the early 1970s Alan Klein who was the manager of the Beatles brought Phil Spector over to England he was basically invited by George uh, Harrison and John Lennon to take on the task of turning around the let it be recording sessions into a usable album because basically they couldn't do anything with it <laughs> by this point obviously oh. the Beatles were all quite unhappy with each other they weren't they're the kind of end of their time together um yeah. so he um worked on with loads of his techniques and made significant changes to the arrangements and the sound of a lot of the songs and there are some people that say that he was actually quite instrumental in the breakup of the Beatles which I'd never heard before but apparently it wasn't just Yoko Ono the <laughs> Um, album was released a, a month after the Beatles <laughs> had broken up and it topped the US and the UK charts and it obviously got the number one single The Long and Winding Road which is probably one of my favourite yeah. Beatles songs I'm not a massive Beatles fan so I do really like that song um, however the overdubbing on it infuriated Paul McCartney and a lot of music critics didn't like his work um, on right. Let It Be and said that you know he'd ruined the work of the Beatles sort of thing, but it's still quite a popular album, I would I would, I would say. So um, I don't think you could have done too much of a bad job. Mm-hmm. It actually won the album of the year at the Grammys in 1973. And it was recorded live and he used 44 microphones at the same time to, to, to create that sound. And John Lennon liked working with him so much that he used him for his Christmas single, Happy Christmas, War Is Over. In 1972, kind of off the back of the success of that, Apple reissued Spectre's A Christmas Gift For You album, and it bought the album the kind of commercial and critical success that he wanted it to in 1963, but it didn't. But when it was kind of re-released, it became a massive hit and a staple, really, of kind of Christmas music. It's kind of like the standard. Every single person is going to have heard at least one song off the album. Oh, yeah. So it was the 70s progressed even though he was still having some of these successes he was still becoming kind of more and more reclusive he was in a massive car crash in 1974 um, where he was seriously injured he was thrown through the windshield of the car in Hollywood and he was almost killed and apparently it's only because the attending police officer detected a very faint pulse that he wasn't declared dead at the scene he was admitted to the UCLA medical center on the 31st of March 1974 with massive head and face injuries that required hours and hours of surgery. He had 300 stitches in his face and over 400 in the back of his head. And what? How many? Yeah, 400 stitches in the back of his head and 300 in his face. You're um, 700 stitches? <laughs> yeah, head? and his head, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of explains a little bit why he looks like the Joker. Um, and his face does look okay. kind of smashed up. But also they reckon that that's the reason that he began his habit of wearing those ridiculous wigs that he became famous for. Okay. Um, so having the, you know, those awful, awful things on his head. And I'll make sure we share some pictures of kind of what they look like <laughs> um, because they're just ridiculous. But after he kind of recovered from that, he started working really closely with 
the Ramones, which um, was obviously a great thing for him to do. However, rumours started to circulate that he started to be pretty erratic in recording sessions. So there had been a rumour earlier on that he'd held John Lennon at gunpoint. And then there was another rumour, several rumours that started going around, that he'd threatened members of the Ramones with a gun during his sessions and that he'd pulled a gun on him when he tried to leave a session, apparently. And the drummer had said, though, the guns were there, but he had a license to carry. He never held us hostage and we could have left at any time. (laughs) But it kind of just became this kind of well-known thing that he would just like wave guns around. And they were just like, well, that's just what Phil does. He remained pretty inactive, really, throughout most of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. He was kind of pulled in to a few bits and pieces and things like that. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1997 and he got a Grammy Trustees Award in 2000. He tried to work with Celine Dion on her album Falling Into You, but he fell out with her production team, apparently, um, which didn't work. And he kind of never really picked up any sort of work. And I guess by the late 90s, 2000s, technology just moved on so much that his, his sound sounded quite dated and it sounded quite... 70s 60s 70s 80s sound yeah. didn't it he so didn't it was move out. he didn't move on with the time no and um people weren't really keen to work with him by the early 2000s he was pretty much just living in his giant alhambra 35 room mansion <laughs> buying priceless musical memorabilia because he had so much money and going wow. on dates with women who are much younger than him um he had had another set of twins with his girlfriend janice Zavala um, in 1982 um, called Nicole and Philip um, and Philip Jr. had actually died of leukemia in 1991 but then he was married again in 2006 to his third wife Rochelle Short who was okay. uh, 26 so yeah I mean Looking at his 2014 mugshot, I don't think she was with him. And, you know, hearing these reports about his personality, I don't think that she was with him for either of those things. But, um, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions. (laughs) So (laughs) he was just kind of living alone and keeping himself to himself and pretty much and going out on the town until the night of February the 2nd, 2003. So Philip had gone to the House of Blues, or House of Blues, which is on the Sunset Strip, which um, I didn't realise, but it was demolished in 2017. But before that, it was a very popular, very famous spot to visit in in Hollywood. Um, okay. And he'd, he'd gone there that night after he'd already been on two dates earlier that evening, um, but apparently not really kind of enjoyed either of them. And he was greeted at the door of a VIP club by a lady called Lana Clarkson. So Lana Clarkson was born in Long Beach, California on the 5th of April, 1962. And she enjoyed a relatively successful film career. Yeah. She was kind of constantly working for, you know, most of the 80s and into the 90s in both some kind of main titles. Was she in Barbarian? Is that a film I want to say? Um, And (laughs) B-movies. And she had a bit of a cult following because of this kind of appearances in um, B-movies. As she kind of started to approach her 30s, her career started to stall a little bit and she wasn't able to really kind of fully earn a living as an actress. So she saw alternative sources of income. Um, She had a website in which she sold kind of autographed DVDs of her films (laughs) and talked to fans on a message board. And she kind of made a living by playing this kind of busty, lusty 
woman um her biggest desire was to be cast as a comic actress or to perform as a comedian and she was working with her kind of publicist and friend to kind of build this stand-up comedy act that she was getting ready to launch in the year 2000 she broke both of her wrists in an accident at christmas which stopped her being able to really do anything she did quite a lot of stunt work which she wasn't able to do obviously while her kind of wrists were recovering so -hmm. while she was kind of recovering she was taking the time to develop and write and direct this this showcase reel titled lana unleashed to try and get herself some more work when she you know <laughs> recovered <laughs> unleashed. Um, unleashed yeah and she took a part-time side job as a hostess in early january 2003 at the house of blues in west hollywood to make ends meet so it was here on the 2nd of February that she met Phil Spector. And when he walked in, trying to gain access to this kind of VIP gentleman's area, she said that he couldn't come in because he was a woman. Um, <laughs> but wow. he was like, I am clearly not a woman. <laughs> Let me in. Um, not much is known about the rest of the evening, but they do know that they left the club together in his limousine at about 1.45 and drove back to his mansion. At about 5am, his driver, who was still waiting outside, (laughs) heard a gunshot from inside and was met by Phil Spector leaving the back of the house with a gun in his hand saying, I think I killed somebody. When the police arrived, they found Lana Clarkson slumped in a chair with a single gunshot wound to her mouth. She had her shoes and coat on and her handbag over the shoulder and the recoil from the gun had knocked out her front teeth and they were kind of like on the floor around her. They said that basically where the bullet had gone in, it had just severed the top of her spinal cord and just kind of killed her pretty much instantly. Spectre was arrested immediately (laughs) um, as he was on the property with a gun and acting quite suspicious and a bit fidgety. When the police turned up, he had his hands in his pockets and he refused to take them out. So... They um, restrained him and arrested him, but he remained free on a million dollar bail, which obviously he could very easily afford because he was a (laughs) gazillionaire. So him and his assistant moved into a hotel in Beverly Hills whilst the police conducted their investigations in, in the house. So Spectre claimed almost instantly to the police that it was an accidental suicide and that Lana Clarkson had kind of come back to his house, had a bit of a mental breakdown, kissed the gun, put it in her mouth and shot herself. I don't know how that could be accidental because I don't know why (laughs) they'd be messing around with a gun anyway. However, everyone who knew her thought that that was kind of ridiculous Okay, because they knew that she was kind of turning her life around. They knew that she had these, these big plans. They knew that she was really excited for these things that she was trying to do for the future and also the day that she'd died she'd gone out to buy some new shoes and okay. they'd kind of argued that people or women who are going to kill themselves don't go out and buy new shoes on the day that they kill themselves okay i'm not sure how isn't that a bit like if you touch this dead body in your the murderer it will spontaneously bleed <laughs> i mean it's not a million miles <laughs> off is it no i mean um, she meant anyway yeah okay so, so <laughs> in in the so that was the february in the september the police officially ruled the death a murder they said this absolutely okay. wasn't a suicide that evidence will not wash and really there was quite a lot of evidence pointing to you know phil Spector being involved if not culpable 
she was killed by a single bullet from a 38 caliber Colt Cobra. So four rounds that were still loaded in it were a plus P type of ammunition, which was okay. um, described by authorities as being quite obscure. And there were 11 other guns in Phil Spector's house. And some of those were loaded with a plus P, which, according to the prosecutors, proved that the guns belonged to Spectre, not Clarkson. A holster the size of the Colt Cobra was found inside the top drawer of a dresser in the foyer in Phil Spector's home. So it feels like a weird place to kind of, you know, it's the first time she's ever been to this man's house. Feels like a weird place for her to start just going and looking for a gun to shoot herself in the mouth. In the powder room off the foyer, police recovered a cloth nappy, which I don't want to know why he had a cloth nappy, but hey, um, soaked with clarkson's blood and they also found a used cocktail glass in there so if she had killed herself why was her blood on something that was in another room (laughs) her blood was also found on the stairs leading up to the second floor prosecutors claim that he engaged in a pathetic clean-up attempt instead of phoning for an ambulance they also found in his living room candles, an empty bottle of tequila and a cocktail glass, which had her DNA on, which is, is fine because, you know, she'd obviously gone back for yeah. a drink. Fine. There was also evidence that blood that was found on Lana Clarkson's jacket was smeared with brain tissue residue, um, suggesting that her hands were near her mouth when the gun went off. And the fact that no such tissue was detected on Phil Spector's garments meant that he couldn't have been near the shooting. But... The gun was found on her left side and she is right-handed. So the prosecutors are saying that that was evidence that he'd staged the scene to kind of make it look like a suicide, but didn't think about kind of where he was putting the gun. They also found blood on a jacket in his wardrobe that belonged to Lana Clarkson. The prosecutors are saying, well, this shows that there was blood splatter from when he shot her or that he was very close to her when he shot her when she when she died with the defense saying well there wasn't enough blood in it to for it to be kind of blood spatter but because she'd have she was kind of in a chair and she kind of shot herself in the back of the mouth the vast majority of the blood would have kind of just gone straight backwards backwards into the chair there wouldn't have been a huge amount of kind of residue to go everywhere else so whether she shot herself or whether he shot her through the Yeah, there wouldn't have been a huge off. amount of... Either yeah. way, it would have gone... Hmm. Yes, sorry, yeah, there wouldn't have been a huge amount of kind of blood going everywhere Good else. Forward. So that wasn't really kind of good enough okay. evidence. But right. okay. there was quite a lot of evidence to show that a lot of her blood was in other parts of the house where it maybe shouldn't have been or where she hadn't been. I mean, it's quite clear that it was his gun that had been used that had been taken out of this drawer which would have been weird for her to kind of go to this house for the first time find find a gun and shoot herself and he was kind of going around saying i can't believe this woman like she i I met her i took her back to mine and she had the audacity to kill herself in my house like what the hell who does that you know (laughs) in that kind of misogynistic way that he did on the 19th of march 2007 his murder trial began the judge allowed the proceedings to be televised which is how yep. we were able to watch it on the telly. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, on the 26th of September, so after kind of 
six months of evidence and deliberations it was declared a mistrial because there was a hung jury it was 10 to 2 for conviction and one of the jurors who wasn't happy to convict basically said he wasn't happy to convict because there wasn't recorded evidence of it so he because there he took the kind of reasonable doubt argument way too far (laughs) to the point where he was kind of like well if there's a shadow of a doubt I can't convict him so which I think you could argue for every single trial there's an element of doubt in it if it hasn't been uh, recorded Recorded and filmed and and filmed from umpteen different (laughs) yeah (laughs) absolutely so it's never gonna happen is it no and there was some discussion that he'd been paid off by Phil Spector to kind of make that judgment Obviously not um, founded by him. So but before and during the trial, um, he went through at least three sets of attorneys and five different wigs. His <laughs> defence attorney initially was Robert Shapiro, who um, okay. very famously represented um, OJ Simpson. And he represented Spectre at the arraignment and his early pretrial hearings. And that's what managed to get him that kind of release on the one million dollar bail and then bruce cutler represented him during the 2007 trial but with during the august <laughs> claiming a difference of opinion between mr specter and me on strategy which doesn't sound like an innocent man <laughs> mm. his uh him and his uh attorney not agreeing on which line they're going to use to get him off he then got a female attorney linda kenny baden to become his lead lawyer for the closing arguments so the defence really concentrated at trial on the claim that her death was a suicide. As a result, the council didn't bring up his 1974 head trauma, as some observers had made the link between traumatic brain injuries and violent crime and things like that. But they didn't bring that up, okay. which is quite interesting. So obviously the first trial was was a mistrial. His retrial started, um, so it was murder in the second degree not first degree because they said there basically wasn't enough time for premeditation premeditation yes yeah, so <laughs> um that began on the 20th of october 2008 with the same judge presiding but it was not televised this time so we'd have missed right. that one <laughs> ah. um the case went to the jury on the 26th of march and it took 19 days for them to come back with a deliberation which Ooh. is quite a long time and they came back on the 13th of april with a guilty verdict Right, okay. So he was found guilty for the second degree murder of Lana Clarkson. Additionally, he was found guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a crime, which added four years to his sentence. I've never heard of that being like a thing, but I lose mm. track of different states and different laws. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was immediately taken into custody and was sentenced on the 29th of May to 19 years to life which doesn't feel like a massive sentence, actually, in America. He put in for kind of several appeals. His first conviction was affirmed on the 12th, um, in May 2011, and um, he was denied a request for a rehearing of his appeal shortly after. He had another review in the August of that year, and again, they said, no, <laughs> you did it, you're staying in here. Um, in December of that year, they petitioned to for a review by the US Supreme Court, arguing that... His constitutional due process rights were violated when prosecutors used the trial judge's comments about an expert's testimony, um, effectively making the judge a witness for the prosecution. But 
they denied that petition again. In June 2012, they filed a habeas corpus appeal in the federal district court, again on the grounds that the original trial judge did numerous inappropriate things which caused him a denial of his due process, but it was rejected. In July 2013, attorney Dennis Riordan filed a petition with the US magistrate urging prompt action due to his ill health. And in June 2015, they recommended a denial of the habeas corpus petition. And then in August 2015, his lawyers filed another motion to try and get some another appeal through in the Ninth Circuit. But none of these were successful, despite all of these kind of attempts at appeal. None of them were granted. He wasn't released from prison. And Phil Spector actually died in January of this year of COVID-19 complications oh, while he okay. was serving his sentence actually at the California healthcare facility. So um, right. he'd been moved from the prison into the kind of main bit. He'd been moved into the kind of healthcare wing of the prison because he was quite poorly for some time. But he was he still would, in custody. He was still in custody. Um, he yeah. would have been eligible for parole in 2024, but COVID got him first. So okay. that is the story of the murder of Lana Clarkson by Phil Spector. And uh, a clever man, uh, a musical genius, some may say, but obviously a very troubled, troubled, tormented, um, dangerous, scary, and by all accounts, not very nice person with a ridiculous taste in clothes and wigs. Yeah, kind of sad, really, when someone that brilliant at the height of their career falls so catastrophically. I mean, there there was a bit of an issue. So when the BBC announced it, I think they went with a headline. It's like Phil Spector, flawed but brilliant producer, dies. And there was quite a lot of uproar. People saying, well, he wasn't flawed, he was a murderer. He killed somebody. <laughs> There's a difference between being flawed, you know, having been having some issues and, and murdering someone, isn't there? And actually something I probably should have mentioned earlier was um, a few women came forward to say that they'd been in similar situations where he'd taken them back to his house. They'd had some drinks. He'd essentially tried to kind of like proposition them and they'd said no. And he'd got really angry at them and either Ah. threatened them with a gun or kind of thrown them out. So they wonder if this was just kind of, this had happened again. She'd gone back and then she was kind of getting ready to leave because she'd got her, um, bag on and her coat on and her shoes on she was ready to go he wasn't happy that she was going to leave because he was expecting her to stay with him for the night and he grabbed his gun and shot her okay that sounds more uh, plausible but that's still kind of circumstantial isn't it like (laughs) i think the kind of that linked with the blood evidence (laughs) Um, i don't know i mean what why would blood around the house be an indication that he murdered her rather than she committed suicide I guess how close he would have been to her when she shot herself. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But I think it's pretty clear they did it, in my personal opinion. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's an interesting case. It's 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 sad, isn't it? And I don't I don't think I realised. Like I always knew that he didn't obviously that Christmas album because I remember listening to it from when I was like really little. Yeah. But I didn't realise that he'd worked on so much of the stuff that I knew. And yeah, that I didn't realise he was so involved with the Beatles. Yeah. No, me neither. And like River Deep Mountain High and like all that stuff with the Righteous Brothers and, you know, real classics of the 20th century, really. He was involved in a lot of them. He was. Did you say you had some photos 
associated with this case, Phoebe? Yeah, loads of photos, um, loads of photos of the crime scene, of him, of the court case, of his wigs, of his clothes. Yeah, all of those. I will put them on our Instagram, which is... At Dad and Daughter Do Death. You can see them on Facebook, which is... Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at... Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you found this episode interesting. Sorry for uh, moving across the Atlantic for a week. <laughs> <laughs> As it's Christmas, Phoebe, let Thanks. you off. <laughs> but it was truly fascinating. Thank you for, for looking into that one and telling me about it. Because, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realise that he'd only met her that night. Yeah. He met her that night. Yeah. She was like took a hostess and... at the club. Yeah. Took her back to his place and she was dead. By Within a couple of hours of the morning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. But I do remember the, the case mm. watching it on hotel television rooms. Yeah. As we travelled across America that year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 14 years ago, that was. <laughs> um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review or some stars or just get in touch with us and let us know what you'd like us to tell you about or any thoughts you've got. To hear from you. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much for listening. So join us next time when once again, Dad and Daughter do death. <laughs>